0: Acts chapter 9, taking a slight step backward from where uh, Sam ended us off uh, with Acts chapter 10, uh, but the passage is up here, so if you want to follow along, please follow along here. If you have, like, a Bible that you prefer to read, like, um, analog, then it's Acts nine thirty six to 43. All right. So now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, and she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill. A tanner. Okay, So as you all know, we're going through a series on the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And Acts tells a story about how the church, and he's trying to convince us of the power of the Spirit in a lot of different ways. And he has this huge, big, gigantic story to tell about how the gospel spread from this small place in Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth. And in this passage, we get some insight into what the Spirit is doing um, on the local level. Peter has traveled outside of Jerusalem to these small Jewish towns. And one thing he notes is these Christian converts, thousands of them who had been in Jerusalem, have started to organize themselves into churches. And in these churches, they were worshiping together, encouraging one another. So on the big picture level, he's talking about how these congregations are starting to form and the different types of people that are in them. From a spiritual level, we see something amazing happen. We see the spirit level up once more. So far, he's given the disciples the gift of tongues. He's made cowardly men courageous. He's healed a lame man who was unable to walk for over 40 years, and he miraculously transported Philip all the way across a desert landscape in the matter of seconds. And here, for the first time in the book of Acts, we have somebody who was dead and who had been raised to life. That is the big picture that Luke is telling. But interspersed throughout Luke, because he's a master storyteller, are these grace notes, these small little vignettes, these small little details that add contrast and depth to the overall picture that he's painting, so certain things pop out even more. And when you look at these details, they're like a microscope that causes us to move away from the larger than life characters that Luke is focusing on Peter, Stephen, and Paul and looking at these smaller, side, lesser-known characters. So what are some of these details? The first thing that we notice about this passage is we get the name of the person who has been healed. In Acts chapter 3, when the lame man is healed, we don't know his name. In the summary statements, when it says multitudes were healed by the apostles passing over and even their shadow making them well, they remain nameless and faceless statistics. Here, we get the person's name, which is Tabitha. And unfortunately, when you translate Tabitha from Aramaic into Greek, her name is Dorcas. So not the best name for an English-speaking group, but I'm just going to call her Tabitha from now on. If I keep saying uh, Dorcas, I won't be able to uh, keep a straight face. So her name is Tabitha, and it makes you shift your focus away from Peter, who is raising people from the dead, and wondering, who is this lady Tabitha. Another detail is invisible in the English, but it pops out in the Greek, and the word that pops out in the Greek is called Mathatria. It's the only time in the entire New Testament that the feminine form for the word disciple appears. This lady is the only person who is referred to as Mathatria in the entire Bible, and Luke is saying, Hey, pay attention to her. Now, the most significant detail comes in verse 39. In verse 39, She had died at that point. People had heard that Peter was close by, so they sent two men running and said, come, you have to come to Joppa. We have this thing that you need to take care of for us. And when Peter gets there and he looks at the body and surveys the situation, the people in her church do something very odd. They show Peter the tunics and the garments that Tabitha had made while she was still alive. These are products, things that she made with her hand that represent who she was, and it's an implied argument, this is the reason. These garments, these things that she produced are the reasons that you should do something about the fact that she's dead. And this when I first read it, it's kind of like a very like cute, almost like innocent kind of detail. It reminds me of when like Arlo will bring home a drawing and, you know, I can tell it's a rainbow but like barely (laughs) tell it's a rainbow. But she's like, Dad, look what I drew. Oh, that's so fantastic. She's like, can I have ice cream? I'm like, yeah, (laughs) well, we'll see, right? Or when you get a little older, you bring home straight A's and then you're like, can I get a phone, right? So you bring home this accomplishment that you have and then you go, I have earned this wonderful thing. Look at this thing that I made. Don't I deserve some special reward? And these disciples from Joppa are doing something very similar. Peter, you have to raise Tabitha from the dead. Why? Look at these garments that she made. Aren't they so wonderful? Aren't they so beautiful? Now, at first, you might think it's a little naive, but the longer you think about what is going on here, you realize that the situation is making us ask this profound question that shapes the way that we live, which is, when you are gone, what is it that you leave behind? When you're no longer here, what are the things that people are going to point to and say, this is what this person is? was all about. What are the echoes? What are the impressions? What are the residues that you leave behind when you're no longer there? Um, I have a sister. I have two sisters, actually. But one of my sister's friends uh, was up in Boston. So while we were there, we went out to get dinner. And while we were eating dinner, after every course, this friend would um, take the food, scrape it onto one plate, and then start stacking the dishes, and then put it onto the corner. And at first, I was like, okay, I don't. I felt like pressure, like I had to eat fast or like eat clean or something like that. But she did that after every single course. And after like the third course, I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I used to be a waitress. And so I hated it when like the things was a mess. So every place I go to, I scrape the food, I stack up the plates in a nice little pile, and then I do that. And it makes me think like, oh, what message do I leave when I leave a restaurant, right? It's an absolute mess, right? And when I think about any kind of situation like that, it makes me think like, oh, what is the message that I'm saying about myself by the things that I leave behind? Here's another story. When I was like a sophomore in the summertime, I lived in Philadelphia with a bunch of my friends. And I was probably studying for the MCATs. uh, At least that's what I said. I was really um, playing Halo. Uh, But uh, no matter what was going on, by the time we left, I was like, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't know who owns this place, but I got to make sure they— know that uh, I'm a Christian. So I left all of these, like, um, gospel tracts that talk about how you can know Christ, right? So I left them all over the apartment. And, you know, we left. And then, like, three hours later, we get a phone call. I'm like, oh, they want to talk about Jesus, right? And then they are, they're like, You guys left an absolute mess at this place. You need to come back tonight and clean up the bathroom, clean up the rooms, bring a vacuum, bring some Lysol. And I thought I was leaving this positive message about how you should believe in Jesus. Really, the message I was leaving is do not trust uh, 19-year-olds to rent your place. What are the things that you leave behind when you're gone? Now, obviously, we're going to get to a place where the ultimate departure is death. When you're no longer here with us, what are the things that people point to to say this is what that person was about? Now, throughout history, there have been all kinds of fascinating answers to this question. In uh, medieval saints and early modern saints, there's something known as the odor of sanctity or the smell of sanctity. And you can never really tell what the person what they were like, whether God was pleased with them or not. But this phenomena happened when a person died. Their body did not decompose in the normal way, but left behind a sweet smell, So this happened with Teresa of Avila in the 16th century. She was a mystic, and she was a monastic reformer. And when she died, the nuns around her reported that the room immediately filled with the smell of roses. And when they buried her in the churchyard, any time you walked past her grave for the next eight months, that place smelled like roses. What are you leaving behind? What is the smell that you leave behind? When you think about uh, Western literature overall, there have been two primary answers that are given to how can we leave something that will outlast us. The first one you can see in Homer's Iliad, and it centers on a figure named Achilles, and Achilles was the guy whose mother dipped him into the river or whatever, and then his uh, ankle was not, um, you know, part of that, so that was his vulnerable point, which is why Kobe Bryant tore his Achilles and could not play for a season, right? So that's where that comes from. But he is presented with a choice by his mother. Do you want to live a long life where you're happy, but you don't do anything remarkable and nobody ever talks about you again? Or do you want to go fight the Trojans, do glorious deeds in battle, but you'll die at the end of this war, but your name will live on forever? And he obviously chose the second path. He goes, I want glory more than I want a long, happy life. And so one of the answers that our society gives for how you can outlast yourself is to do something exceptional, to make sure history books are written about you for the rest of your life. That is the primary way when I was a kid that I dreamed that I would make my mark on the world. I am going to, I don't know, write something that people will read for the rest of their lives. And now that I'm 40, I'm thinking it's probably not going to happen. So that is one way, the path of glory. Another way is much more common. In uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, he opens by talking about how time erodes beauty. And he starts off by saying, When forty winters shall besiege thy brow and dig deep trenches in thy beauty's field, thy youth's proud livery so gazed on now will be a tattered weed of small worth held. And he is talking about the most beautiful creature (laughs) that there ever existed in the entire world. Uh, But he notes, as he experiences life, this person's beauty will one day fade. So what is this person to do, knowing that time one day will take away this person's beauty. And the answer he gives is an answer that most of us have probably innately understood, which is to have kids. When you have kids, after you're gone, people will point to them and say, oh my goodness, you look just like that person. Right? And he says, um, to make it real, he says, how you want to be made new, even when you're old, how you want to feel your blood run warm, even when you're cold, is by having children. So we have the path of glory, and we have the path of kids. But when you look at Tabitha's death, the people who are around her do not point at any exceptional deeds that they did, and they do not point to any of her kids, even if she had kids. That is not the thing that they think represents who she is. Instead, they point to her work, the thing that she produced with her hands, the things that she did while she was alive. And so I think what we should do is spend a little bit of time talking about work. Now, when you look over this passage, there's definitely a professional context here. It talks about what Tabitha produced, not by buying things, but by working with her hands. At the end, in verse 43, it says that Peter stayed with Simon, a tanner, who's somebody who works with leather. So he's talking about people's jobs and asking you to think about what you do for work. Does your work glorify God? Can you point to your work as a way to say this is why this person should be raised from the dead? Now, just a statistic for you. Uh, On average, we spend about 90,000 hours at work, which when put back to back to back to back to back is about 13 years. Uh, That equals about 30 to 40 percent of all your waking life. So 30 to 40 percent of your entire life is spent clocking in, clocking out, doing the things that you do. I grew up in a Korean house, so the only jobs I knew were doctor, lawyer, and pastor. And I cannot for the life of me, like when I talk to somebody in finance and they start telling me what they do, like it's all the same, like uh, investment banking, uh, hedge funds, I I don't know what any of that stuff is, right? But this was the world I grew up with. Your job is going to be the thing that most defines you. And when we think about how we think about work, there's all these different strands that are kind of floating out there that create this distorted picture of work. When you look in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve fell, it says, by the sweat of your brow, you will now bear fruit and eat the fruit of the earth. And when you look at it in that way, you think of work as a curse. But when you look at it in the classical world, work was opposed to leisure. And leisure is the life that I think most of us would love to live, where you get to sit back, hang out with your friends, read books. So why work? Work was the necessary thing that you do to one day live a life of leisure But then something changed in the 19th century. In the 19th century, religion was falling away. The meaning that we made in the world through God had suddenly started to disappear. And now people were looking at work as the place where they would find personal fulfillment. Who are you? You are your job. And if you cannot be happy in your job, there's something wrong with the way that you're living. And so now, when all of us close our eyes and picture what we do 9 to 5, we all have different attitudes towards it. Maybe work is some drudgery that we have to do just to make money to support our family, and it's partly like a curse. We feel like, if I didn't have Adam and Eve fall like mm, 10,000 years ago, then I would not have to be here at this moment. Some of us look at work because we live in New York, and we live in such a highly consumeristic society as a measure of value. How valuable is this person? Well, how much do they make? Where do they work? What do they do? And then the final way is a lot of us, I think, think the key to our happiness is it's the right job. If we get the right job where we find meaning in life, then that will be the thing that solves all the things that are kind of going on in my head about why I'm not happy in this world. But when we look at Tabitha's life and we look at the way that her work is described, we find things that keep her and our perspective in the right place. When she's introduced in this story, she is not introduced as a seamstress. She's not introduced as somebody who uh, makes garments and cloths. She is introduced as a mathetria. She is a disciple. This is the primary identifier that rules her life. It's not about what she does at work. Who she is first and foremost is a follower of Christ. But what kind of stuff was she making? What was the quality of it? What type of garment was it? She was not working in high fashion. It would not be um, displayed in New York Fashion Week. When you read the Greek Uh, A good translation might be undergarments, things that are hidden from everybody else, things that are basic, things that are necessary, but things that you still require. She was not a valuable person because she produced uh, high cultural artifacts or things that people saw even. She was a valuable person not because of what she produced or her job. She was a valuable person because of whom she served. It says she served widows and provided them with their basic needs. But the larger context I think we have to keep in mind is her labor, the things that she did with her hands, were not in a professional context. What we find in verse 36 is the context of her life was good works and acts of charity. She made these things because her life was all about good works. And this is where we get back to what I said at the beginning. On the big picture, Luke is telling a story about the first person in the church to ever be raised again from the dead. But the other thing that we see, the small detail we notice is, this is the first time in the book of Acts that good works are ever mentioned. And if that had not happened, you would read through the book of Acts and think, what does it mean to be a good Christian? I've got to raise people from the dead. I have to speak in tongues. I have to do all these miraculous things. But Tabitha's story tells us that the thing that we need to do in order to be filled with the Spirit is to do good works. And what we learn then is like the Holy Spirit is like a, a working parent, right? They have an impact in the world, but behind the scenes at home, they're doing all these other things. The Holy Spirit on the world stage is raising people from the dead, but within the churches, he is inspiring people to do good works. Now, not all of us are going to have miraculous gifts. Over the last couple months, I've been praying that somebody here will have the gift of healing. I think it'll be necessary. I think when we come into this church, I would love it if people who are wounded feel like they can be healed physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. But not all of us are going to get that gift. Not all of us are going to feel like we have the power to teach. Not all of us are going to feel like we have the power to heal or to do these other things. But the thing that is incumbent upon all of us is to do good works. Whatever your gifts are, whatever your skills are, Ephesians 2.10 says, We were created in the image of God to be his workmanship in order to do good works. Walking in the Spirit Hopefully maybe for some of us means doing something miraculous, but for all of us, it means we need to devote ourselves to good works. Let's see here. So, when you think about the wider question, what is it that you're going to leave behind when you're gone? The best answer you can provide are good works. So, when my um, dad passed, for example, he left me a watch, which is why I got into watches. He left my mom all these uh, like handwritten letters that he wrote when they were still like a lovey-dovey <laughs> right after they got married. And I'm like, uh, can I read those one day? She goes, absolutely not. I'm, like, I'm going to burn them <laughs> when I die <laughs> and leave instructions in my will. So he left behind things like that. But at his funeral, um, the people who spoke uh, were people at church. And they said, uh, he was a doctor, so he said, I'm so thankful that um, your dad like would sit in the back After service and give people medical advice and just tell them, like, oh, you should see this, you should do that. When his patients would speak, they talk about, oh, I didn't have enough money, but he let me come, right? It's the good works that leave this echoing impression. Uh, One story I think a lot about uh, in terms of this is the comedian Chris Farley. So I love, like, the movie Tommy Boy. Every time I put on a suit jacket, I think, like, fat guy in a little (laughs) coat. Uh, But... When he died, um, everybody knew him as this larger-than-life figure who was doing all these crazy things, and his lifestyle was definitely um, not something to emulate. But when he got there, this guy named Matt Foley, who his uh, inspirational character was based off of, was a priest from Wisconsin, and he talked about all these things that Chris Farley did that nobody ever saw. He was a devout Catholic. He went to churches um, here in, I think, Midtown, but he would visit the elderly from those churches and go visit their nursing home, homes and make them laugh. He'd work in soup kitchens. Uh, there's a story about this guy named Michael Hall, who was a kid, and his favorite cast member was Chris Farley. So Farley went to visit him, I think out in Ohio, and spent some time with him. And as he was there, he noticed like some of the parents for the other kids weren't available at the time. I guess they were like getting lunch or something. So he spent the next like six hours just visiting every kid and making sure that they laughed. Now, who am I going to think of when I think of Chris Farley? I think of Tommy Boy. But the thing that echoes from his life are these good works, the things that nobody really knew about, the things that were hidden, that still echoed out and had an impact on people's life. And I guess the question for us is, what are we leaving behind? When we are no longer here, when we're gone, what is the echo? What is the sound? What is the residue that keeps on ringing forth that people will point to and say, this is what that person was about? Just one more thing I think that's important here. If we look at the narrative flow of this passage, what we see is the resurrection in this story would not have happened without Tabitha's good works. If Tabitha had died and she had done nothing for her community, it's unclear whether anybody would have stood up and go, we have to go get Peter because we need this person back. Her good works were the inspiration for resurrection in this story. It's like an idea that turns into a novel, a tune or a melody that you hear in your head that you can't get out that turns into a song. Her good works inspired Peter to do something powerful, which is to raise her from the dead. And that's the thing I think we should think about. What are we supposed to do with our life? What is good news supposed to do as a church? No matter what gifts we end up having, the thing we all have to be thinking about and praying through is, how can I fill my life with good works so that I can witness to the resurrection? So in closing, good news, whom is our church going to serve that's going to raise their voice when we're gone and say, we want this church back, we want them back? What are the good works that our church is going to do that people will point to and say, this is what that church was about. This is what they did. This is how they blessed the world. Good news, church, when it's time, what is it that we are going to leave behind? Let's pray. So I think it's um, good. We have a little bit of time. So why don't we just take uh, some time to pray for two things. We all uh, work or we're aware of work, right? And we spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week at work. When's the last time you prayed about your work, prayed about your coworkers, prayed about the impression that you're leaving there? So let's take a little bit of time and lift up our workplace to God. God, yes, this is a place I make money. I might not like it. Um, This is a place where I find fulfillment. But is it also a place that allows you to put forth good works, things that might be hidden, things that people will not necessarily be able to articulate until you're gone and they say, oh my God, this person was such a blessing and such a light here. No matter where you work, no matter what your attitude towards work is, we can all do good works there. The second thing I think we should spend a little bit of time praying through is our church. God, what are the good works you are calling us to do? So that one day when we are gone, what are people going to point to and say, we want this church back. We need this church to be here. We need this church to rise from the dead because of these things that they did for this world. So because we have a little bit of time, I'd say maybe like five to seven minutes, let's just pray for those two things. God, help me to be a blessing in my workplace. God, help this church to be a blessing in New York. Uh, And then after a bit, we will uh, maybe I'll lift up a prayer for us and then we'll sing some songs.